You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Crossing Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading will be from two passages, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. I will be reading from the CSB version, and I would encourage us to please follow along in our own Bibles. Um, the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you, a desolation, like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, new moons and Sabbaths, and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The faithful town 
what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice, righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded, your beer is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, uh, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to extinguish the flames. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. The next passage is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Uh, God, uh, as we look at your word, uh, we do pray once again that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. A bit of a history lesson for, for some of us. In 1974, 1974, over 2,000 Christians from all around the world, they gathered at Lausanne in Switzerland for the very first International Congress on World Evangelization. They gathered to answer this one question. How should we implement that biblical mandate to reach our world for Jesus? How should Christians work together to reach this world with the gospel? And out of that Congress was born something called the Lausanne Covenant. The Lausanne Covenant. And it says a whole range of things about mission and evangelism. But among those things, this is one thing that it says. 
Quote, in the church's mission of sacrificial service, evangelism is primary. World evangelization requires the whole church to take the gospel to the whole world. Did you see that line there? Evangelism is primary. So that's what they said. That, that was the kind of communique that was put out out of this massive international once-in-a-lifetime event. But then on the last day of that congress, something really unexpected happened. 10% of that 2,200 of those delegates, they stood up and they protested against that claim that evangelism is primary. They rejected the claim that evangelism is primary. Instead, they argue that when you see Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it says it involves both evangelism and social justice in equal measure. They would say that there is no priority on proclaiming the gospel over and against doing works of justice. That evangelism and acts of justice have the same value. That's what those 200 said. Let's make it even more awkward. The next year, the same, the same group gathers, and the great American evangelist, Billy Graham, stands up, and he reiterates the priority, the primacy of evangelism. He says this, What I counsel is that we stick strictly to evangelism and missions, while at the same time encouraging others to do the specialized work that God has commissioned the church to do. That is the specialized work of acts of justice. So you can see this is like that family dinner where we all go, oh, we all agree on this. Then some people in the family go, oh, I'm not quite sure about that. And then an elder statesman of the family goes up and says, no, you're wrong. Then things get even more awkward because also at that Congress was a man called John Stott, the great English evangelical. And then John Stott stands up and he says, if Billy Graham's right, I'm quitting. John Stott stands up and says, if social action isn't part and parcel of the Great Commission and what we are on about, I will resign from this movement. This is what he later writes. He writes that evangelism and social action are like the two blades of a pair of scissors or the two wings of a bird. But for Billy Graham, evangelism is the bird. Right, like This is kind of awkward. It's that, it's that moment your mum and dad are in a fight, you're stuck in the middle, and they go, who's right? And you're like, John Stott or Billy Graham? It's not, an, it's not a fun position to be in. Is the Great Commission primarily evangelism, or does it include social action? Let's get practical. Uh, if someone goes overseas to teach English to care for orphans or to start a microfinancing initiative for the world's poorest, can we call that mission? Or is mission strictly the priority of preaching? Can I say it is actually one of the biggest questions in world missions among Christians today? It still is. And that's our question today. I want to get to the end of today and answer that for us by looking at Isaiah 1. You see, last week we saw the Garden of Eden, didn't we? But we saw there was more than a garden. We saw that it was a temple. It was a temple and it was a kingdom. It's where God, is, where God reigns and where God is worshipped. And God called all of us, he called Adam and Eve to extend his rule, to extend his worship to the ends of the earth, to fill the earth with his glory. Our mission, friends, is to bring everyone and everything under the rule and reign of King Jesus. That's our mission. Eden's the starting point. It's like the first pieces of that puzzle that you build out from to form that bigger picture of a whole new world. 
Now, I wonder if you've noticed, right? If you look outside the four walls of this, you know, light-locked room, you might see a beautiful world, but you might notice that it's also a broken world. It is a deeply broken world. This world can't be what God meant it to be. Adam and Eve quite clearly failed God's mission. Instead of extending God's kingdom, Adam and Eve, they destroyed it. They rebelled against God. And instead of worshipping God, they worshipped themselves. They, they, instead of extending the kingdom, they, they imploded the kingdom. And if you read Genesis 4 to 11, you'll see that our world isn't filled with God's glory. Actually, our world is filled with our sin. God's mission has failed. That's what, if you want to see Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, that's the big headline, mission failure. But then, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise. He speaks. Just like he spoke in Genesis 1 to bring the world into existence, in Genesis 12, he now speaks, but he makes a promise to a man named Abram. And he tells Abram, your family will be a new Eden. It'll be the starting point of a new world. This is the mission reboot, as it were. Israel, your family, your nation will be a picture of the world to come, which is great news. But you know what that means? It means that our sin doesn't stop God's plans. It means that God's mission remains unchanged. A summary of the Old Testament is this. The Old Testament is a long story of, just, of how, just like Adam, Israel fails God's mission over and over and over again. The Old Testament makes a frustrating reading. You know what they're supposed to be, and yet you just see over and over and over again, they fail, they fail, and they fail again. Where they're supposed to be a picture of Eden to the nations. That's what they're supposed to be. Uh, a good friend of mine once told me that when he reads about the United States of America, he goes, it's awe-inspiring. He goes, I want to be American, right? He goes, I see the Constitution, the Pledge of Allegiance, the kids in elementary school who remember and memorize every single state that there is, the star-spangled banner. It's amazing, really. He goes, America, land of the free, home of the brave, that's where I want to be until I went there and I saw America in person. Sorry, Eric. Um, it's a probably a little bit unfair on our American friends, but it is the picture of Judah. You read about the promise, the law, the covenant, God's relationship with this special people, and you'd say to yourself, man, Israel, that's where it's, that's where it's at. Ho land of the free, home of the brave, that's that picture of Eden, that light on a hill which shines to the world. And then you go there. Then you pack up your bags and you go to Jerusalem and you enter the city gates and you go, oh my gosh, it's so far different. Just look, Isaiah 1 verses uh, 1 to 9, Jerusalem has abandoned the Lord. Verse 2 says they're like children who've rebelled against their father. Verse 4 says they've turned their backs on God. I mean, this city, right, it's meant to look like Eden, a lush and fertile garden teeming with life, beaming with light, attracting the nations in to come and see the Lord. But instead, look at what it's become. Verse 7, 
your land is desolate. Your city is burnt down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you, a desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Just picture, it's tragic actually. Jerusalem is is an empty shell of what it's meant to be. Because firstly, it abandoned the Lord, and secondly, it's filled with injustice. It's awful. It's sin city. In verse 10, Jerusalem isn't a new Eden. That'd be great. Instead, here, they're a new Sodom. You just understand what that means, right? A new Sodom. In Genesis 18, right, Sodom was so wicked that God couldn't even find one righteous person there, not even one. It was a city filled with the most depraved sexual violence, a city that represented the worst of the worst of the worst. And yet here in Isaiah 1, this is what the Lord says to the Christians of his day. You're just as bad as them. You're just as bad as them. Verse 15, your hands are covered with blood. Verse 23, they do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. I mean, these are the Christians of their day. They should be having a heart for the least and lowly. They should be caring for the weak and the poor. But instead, they're abusing the most vulnerable of society. Their leaders should be godly. But instead, look, your rulers are rebels. Friends of thieves, they all love graft and chase after bribes. You see, the people of God in the Old Testament are greedy, corrupt, and they exploit the poor. Jerusalem is supposed to be a picture of Eden to the nations, a city of righteousness, justice, and love. But look at it now. The once faithful town, look at what it's become. An adulteress she has become. And here's the worst part. They still rock up to church. They still serve on the Connect team. Our Connect team does a great job, you know, but they still serve. While Jerusalem is carrying on with its injustice, its abuse, its sin, it pretends to worship the Lord. Jerusalem is supposed to be a model of worship, but let's face it, we look at what should be that amazing city and we go, a cesspool of hypocrisy. A cesspool of hypocrisy. And we need to reckon with this, right? If you look at the data and the statistics, actually the number one reason why, why the number one negative perception of Christians in Australia by their non-Christian friends is hypocrites. Hypocrites. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder, maybe that's how you see the church. And can I say, it's actually really understandable. Because here's the tragedy, here's the tragic irony of the Bible is that God's people have always been corrupted by the very sins we denounce. It's not right, it's awful. And God hates it more than anyone else. You you saw uh, the the reaction of the public during the um, child sexual abuse scandals involving the church, and you saw the public say the church should be torn down, its it's tax-exempt status should be ruined, there should be penalties, there should be judgment. Well, guess what? That's actually what God says. Because in verses 24 to 31, God calls his children, my foes, my enemies. And he says, I'm going to come and take revenge against them. 
You see, that's what Jude has done. They put themselves under God's judgment. And verse 30 says that God will burn this garden down. It's a terrifying picture, right? You picture this, a city which should have been lush, beautiful, teeming with life, beaming with light, is now set ablaze by the fire of God's wrath. And if we could see the wickedness in it, the exploitation of the least and the lowly among it, we would look at it and admit to ourselves, he's right. He's right. You see, Judah's mission is a catastrophic failure. Instead of transforming the world with God's glory, Judah itself is destroyed by God's wrath. And I'm looking at this garden, and I'm thinking to myself, God might as well burn Eden to the ground and start over. Why, why stick with this garden? Why labor with a garden that will yield such bad fruit? But he doesn't. He doesn't burn it down. Instead, he does something breathtaking. In 1546, Giorgio Vasari spent six months painting this beautiful picture of the Last Supper. That painting spanned across five large panels, and it was 21 feet long. It was nothing short of, of an artistic masterpiece. But in 1966, a flood burst into Florence. It swelled to over eight feet high. And guess what it did to that masterpiece? It almost irreparably destroyed it. And for the next half century, that work of art, that painting was considered one of history's greatest masterpieces. It was also considered one of history's greatest casualties. Until 17 years ago. 17 years ago, a team of experts come together and they undertake to repair the irreparable. They spend 10 long years, 10 years, painstakingly restoring this painting to its former glory. And today, the Last Supper hangs in the Museum of the Opera of Santa Croce and people from around the world come to see it. Judah was considered one of history's greatest masterpieces. But when you look at Jerusalem, it became one of history's greatest tragedies. It was supposed to be a picture of Eden, but in the end, it became a picture of sin. But God promises to take this picture and restore it to its former glory, to make it as beautiful as it was before. Just picture this in verses 25 to 26. God, just like an art restorer, says, I will burn away your dross completely. I'll remove your impurities. I'll restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. And afterward, you will be called a righteous city, a faithful town. It's beautiful. And in chapter 2, we see this spectacular vision where the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. Now, when you see those words, the Lord, Lord's house, do you know what that is? It's the temple, it's the kingdom, it's the garden, it's Eden. Can you see what God is promising to do? Just like those experts restored that painting that was damaged beyond repair, God will restore this city that was destroyed beyond all hope. Jerusalem, God's people will be righteous once again. It will be that city and those people where justice is pursued, 
where the oppressor is corrected, where the rights of the fatherless are defended, where the widow's cause is pled, it will be restored as a picture of Eden to the nations. And right now today, tourists from around the world travel to Florence to see and look at that Last Supper. And one day, the nations of the world will flock to Jerusalem to gaze upon God's glory. It is the ultimate restoration project. Chapter 2 says, all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Isn't that what we say with each other for holidays? Come, let's go to Japan in October. I'm going, it'll be great, right? Come, let's go. And instead here you've got people saying to all their friends, come, let's go up and see the glory of God. And when they do, verse 4 tells us this is what God will do. He will settle disputes among the nations. He will provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation. And I love this line, they will never again train for war. Do you you see that picture? One day, all the nations of the world will look at Jerusalem. They will see a picture of Eden and they will fall on their knees in worship of God. On that day, Eden will have expanded its borders. The garden will have covered the world and God's glory will have gone out to the ends of the earth. This won't just be a garden. It won't just be a kingdom. It won't just be a temple. It'll be a whole world where there's no more depression. No more disaster. No more disability. No more disease. No more death. I wish that world was here now, don't you? Don't you wish that world was here now? And so we read Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness over the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. So Isaiah ends by saying in chapter 2, verse 5, addressing every one of us here, house of Jacob, come and let's walk in the Lord's light. Cross and crown, people of God. Let's be that picture of Eden to the nations by being so holy and so righteous that everyone in the world will look at us and go, wow. As a church, let's pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Let us both individually and as a church live such lives of care and compassion, mercy and justice, grace and love, so that people from every nation will look at us and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. May we commit ourselves to such works of justice, such acts of mercy, that people from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language might be attracted to God's glory and drawn into his kingdom. Judah was a picture of Eden to the nations. And friends, you and I and this church, we must be a picture of Eden to the world. 
in the church that I grew up in, there was, a, uh, there was a young guy who came, in my mind he was very old, but he was in year 12 and I was in year 9, so everyone's old. And, and he came and he didn't understand anything about the gospel. He didn't understand anything about the Bible. He came because he had a bunch of Christian mates and he saw they love each other like no one I've ever seen. I don't get it, but whatever it is, I want it. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a wonderful witness to have? 1 Peter 2, 9-12 says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Friends, Cross and Crane, we are the new Eden. And why is it that Peter says we should conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles? Verse 12, so that when they slander you as evildoers, notice, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Do we have such good works that the world could actually observe it and say that? Or Matthew 5, we are a city on a hill, we are the new Eden, and why should we let our light shine before others? Verse 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Friends, the church, our church, should be a picture of Eden to the world, so that by our holy lives, people from every tribe might glorify God and worship His Son. You see, we started with that question, what is involved in the Great Commission? Is it evangelism alone, or does it also include acts of justice and good works? And I want to say, however we answer that question, whatever we say mission is, we cannot say that justice doesn't matter. We cannot say that our lives don't matter. We cannot say that our works don't matter. We cannot say that our life together as a church doesn't matter. We do not gather here on Sundays to just listen to a sermon. We come together as the people of God so that by our love for one another, not only might we be built up, but God might be glorified in the nations and this city might see that light and flock to the Lord. Our lives must shine the light of God's glory to the world. We need to live with such a commitment to justice, such a heart for the poor and the needy that everyone around us will say, wow, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. You see, when we read Isaiah 1, it seems so clear, doesn't it, that justice must be a core part of who we are as the people of God. And we might hit the pause button there and go, well, that's it. I guess Billy Graham was wrong. John Stott was right, as always, it seems. And so let's just, let's just go with John Stott. This is one of those moments Billy Graham got it wrong. But I want to actually pause there and offer three qualifications. Three qualifications. And they are on the more controversial side. But follow me, and I want to show you from the Bible why I think they're true, yeah? Number one, our acts of justice are first for the church. Our acts of justice are first for the church. Now, I know this is a controversial thing to say, but I want you to notice in Isaiah, where we're Bible people, God's concern isn't primarily about Israel's sin against the nations. It's about its sin against its own people. The focus is on restoring righteousness within Jerusalem, showing justice to the most vulnerable among God's people. And it's only once justice is restored within the city that then in chapter 2, the justice and light of God's glory shines outwardly to the nations. 
Or look at Galatians 6. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. That means all means all, right? This is one of those places, all means everyone, right? Especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And I think part of us goes, ugh, I don't know how I feel about that. It's like a discriminatory love. But I think it seems clear both from Isaiah 1 and Galatians 6 that our acts of justice are first for the church and then for the world. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about people who aren't Christian. That's the last thing that I'm saying. All people, Christian or not, are created in God's image. All people are worthy of love as our neighbor. But let me put it this way. It's like that scene of a poor orphan stuck outside in the snow. He sees the glow of a fireplace through the window of a nearby house. And he walks up to that window and he peeks in. And what does he see? He sees a family gathered around a table sharing in a meal. There's a father and a mother and all the kids. But there's a cousin there born with a disability. An aunt there who's bound to a wheelchair. People who aren't related by blood but still welcomed in sitting around that bigger table. And this kid, this orphan stuck in the cold looking through the glass at this household goes, Wow, everyone here belongs. They're warmed not just by that fireplace. They're warmed by their love for one another. And as that orphan peers through the window, all he could ever long for is that door to open and for him to be welcomed in. Can I say, friends, that is what the church is meant to be to the world. God wants us to restore the brightness of his glory within the church so then it shines into the darkness of this lonely and lost world. He wants us to love one another with such care, compassion, mercy, and sacrifice. He wants us to look after the most vulnerable in our own churches, to care for the Christian poor, so that those who are lost in darkness will see how we love one another and go, can I come in? Can I join? Can I sit around that table? We must care for the world, but our acts of justice are first for the church. The second qualification... Our acts of justice are futile without the word. Our acts of justice are futile without the word. Please notice why the nations come to Jerusalem in verse 3 of chapter 2. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Do you notice? It's not just justice, holiness, righteousness, and love that attract the nations to Jerusalem, though it is. It's more than that. It's the word of the Lord. For it's God's word that settles disputes among the nations. It's God's word that that teaches the nations about his ways. It's God's word that provides arbitration for many peoples. It's God's word that brings peace to a broken world. Acts of justice are good, but we can never achieve true justice with acts of justice alone. Only the word of God can heal a broken world. Without God's word, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church, however good we might be, will never be truly just. If we give ourselves to acts of justice but do not proclaim the gospel of God, we are merely putting a band-aid over a gaping wound. 
in the long run, it will not work. John Stott was right. We should not divorce social action from evangelism. The work validates the word. And Billy Graham was right that the word is central and all of our acts of justice will mean nothing without it. Third qualification, third qualification. Our acts of justice must point to the king. I want to suggest that the great temptation for many of us Christians is to care so much about social justice, but not to speak the name of Jesus. We will do practical acts of care and compassion and we'll let our lives do the talking, as it were. I'll talk about this in two weeks' time, but we we pursue what we call lifestyle evangelism. The only problem with that is it's all lifestyle and no evangelism most of the time. Maybe it's because we want to be winsome. Maybe it's because we don't want to be accused of having ulterior motives when we care for people physically. Or maybe we don't speak the gospel because we know that the world will praise us for doing justice, but it will persecute us for speaking the gospel. You see, in John 6, the crowds come to Jesus. Why do they come to Jesus? Not because they want him. It's because they want bread. You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you, because you look at the lows and were filled. You see, isn't it so much for us to talk to our non-Christian friends and satisfy their stomach, but not satisfy their soul? Isn't it so much easier to speak of someone's physical need, but remain silent about their spiritual poverty? Isn't it so much easier to give people a kingdom, but not give the people the king? But we've seen that God's mission is to bring all things under the reign of his son. There is no kingdom without the king. There is no mission without evangelism. Unless we point to the king, we are physically feeding people, but spiritually starving them. We must give them the bread of life. Now, if you're a perceptive person, you might have gone, well, Adam, all you've done really in this whole sermon is Isaiah 1 and 2, you've built up why justice matters, and then with your three qualifications, you've managed to totally undercut everything. Why bother? Why bother, right? By your strategy, the better thing to do would be care for the, uh, care for the vulnerable within the church. Don't worry about physical care and compassion for the world. Just give them the gospel. Isn't that a better strategy? Isn't a better strategy? Why waste our time by feeding them physically? We'll just feed the Christians physically and we'll feed the non-Christians spiritually. Don't give them the bread for their stomachs. Give them the bread of life for their souls. But I want to say, actually, if we do that, we are still missing the point. Let me take you in closing to something that happened in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Jesus and his disciples, they're going to a remote place to escape the crowds. And then in verse 34, when Jesus goes ashore, he sees this large crowd, and what happens? He has compassion on them. He's literally, to transliterate it it from uh, the Greek to the English, he's gutted for them, right? They were like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, when he sees their need, he's moved with compassion. But I want you to see what he does first out of that compassion. He began to teach them many things. He looks at the crowd and what does he see? He sees their deepest need. They need the gospel. So he gives them the bread of life. 
He proclaims the words of life. Out of a deep compassion for their deepest need, he fulfills his mission to preach the word. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. You see, he feeds them bread for their souls, but in verses 37 to 44, he then feeds them bread for their bodies. You see, the very same compassion which drives Jesus to meet their deepest need and give them the gospel is the very same compassion that drives him to then feed their bodies and give them bread. We cannot say that we truly care for people if we only meet their material needs. If I only meet their material needs, but I know that judgment awaits them, how can I possibly say I love them or have compassion on them? It just doesn't work. It's inconsistent. People will accuse Christians, you have ulterior motives, hidden mo- you have hidden motivations in trying to care for people. They're not hidden. They're explicit. I love you so much that I care about not just your life here, I care your life in eternity. I cannot say that I genuinely love someone or have compassion on them if I seek to meet their material needs alone. But real integrity would say, that I cannot say that I truly care for people if I only care about their spiritual needs as well. Think about it. I care about the state of your soul. I care about your ultimate welfare and ultimate good. Mate, I'm starving here physically. Doesn't matter. You know? Well, actually, if you genuinely care about their ultimate need, you will care about every other lesser need as well. We cannot drive a wedge between these two things. We, the, the problem with that discussion between Stott and Graham is they were focused on the ends. What Jesus does is he focuses on our hearts. It is the one same compassion that drives us to do both. Compassion must drive us to care for all the needs of all people and especially their spiritual need. John Piper writes this, We will care about all suffering now and especially eternal suffering later. So here's my question. Is your heart gripped with that compassion? Compassion that that sees people's material and physical needs before you and moves towards them, but doesn't stop there. A greater compassion for a greater need. In 1980, the Lausanne movement met again, this time in Thailand. And I want you to see what they wrote. I love this. Quote, evangelism and social action are integrally related... But of all the tragic needs of human beings, none is greater than their alienation from their creator and the terrible reality of eternal death for those who refuse to repent and believe. If we do not commit ourselves with urgency to the task of evangelization, we are guilty of an inexcusable lack of human compassion. Let me say that last line one more time. If we do not commit ourselves with urgency, To the task of evangelization, we are guilty of an inexcusable lack of human compassion. Friends, that is what must drive us. That is what must motivate us to care for the world's material poverty. And that is what must drive us to care even more for this world's spiritual destitution. The compassion of our Lord Jesus. Last week... um, we close by asking this question. I ask you, when you look out at our world, what do you see? And today I want to close by asking this question. When the world looks at us, what do you think it sees? Let's, let's, let's get specific. When the world and your friends look at this church, 
your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus in this community of faith, what do you think it sees? What do you think they see? Does the world see a church that's no different from the world? A church that is just as greedy for money, hungry for power, ambitious for glory. A church that abuses the weak, silences the sufferer, neglects the plight of a needy world. Does it see a church that's just as wicked as Jerusalem, just as wicked as Sodom? I hope not. And can I say, as someone whose job it is to try and look after and serve you guys, I want to say that I don't think it is. I'm so encouraged by the thousand different ways in which you serve and love one another. But I suspect as a church, and this is the pastor's heart moment, I think we do a good job in caring for each other spiritually, but we may run the risk of neglecting that other material, physical, practical care aspect. And I think we need to pair both together. We need to find wise ways to do that. And as a church, over the coming months, we're going to be thinking about how to do that well together, how to have ministry teams that can be for care for people's practical material needs. The same compassion which drives us to read one-to-one should be the same practical care and compassion that should drive us to care for each other in life's hardships. When the world looks at our church, does it see a picture of Eden? High bar. A microcosm of the world to come. A city on a hill that's filled with justice, righteousness, mercy, and love. Does it see a people who love one another? A people who sacrifice for one another? A people who forgive one another? Does it see a church that loves the world in every way and seeks to meet its every need, both physical and especially spiritual? Does it look at our church and see a people whose hearts burn for the Lord and break for the lost in every way? Does it see a people who are so moved with compassion? And so, the call of Isaiah to Judah is the call of us, to all of us today. House of Jacob, come, let's walk in the Lord's light so that your friend who doesn't know Jesus your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your your friend and your family who don't know the Lord Jesus, they might look at us and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could shine the light of God's glory so brightly to the world around us? There's an aspiration, there's a vision, there's an ambition that is worthy of our greatest effort. Let me pray. God, you have saved us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And now you call us to shine that light to the nations around us, to be a picture of Eden to the world, a microcosm of the kingdom to come, so that when the nations look at us, when our non-Christian friends look at us, they might look at us as if they were that orphan staring at that household by the warmth of the fire, sharing that love together with you as our Father and long to be welcomed in. God, we want to welcome the nations in and we want to show them just how beautiful and glorious you are so that when they come into this home, join us at that table. They might feel that warmth of the Father, that love of the Father and bring the rest of their friends and family around the table of the Lord. How we long for that day. Make us a people, God, who walk in your light to your great glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.